Chapter Ten of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kerry Ford of Paikakariki, New Zealand. She by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Ten: Speculations. Within an hour of our finally deciding to start, five litters were brought up to the door of the cave, each accompanied by four regular bearers and two spear hands. Also a band of about fifty armed Amahaga, who were to form the escort and carry the baggage. Three of these litters, of course, were for us, and one for Bilali, who, I was immensely relieved to hear, was to be our companion, while the fifth, I presume, was for the use of Ustay. Does the lady go with us, my father? I asked Bilali, as he stood superintending things in general. He shrugged his shoulders as he answered. If she wills. In this country, the women do what they please. We worship them and give them their way, because without them, the world could not go on. They are the source of life. Ah, I said the matter never having struck me quite in that light before. We worship them, he went on, up to a point, till at last they get unbearable, which, he added, they do about every second generation. And then what do you do? I asked with curiosity. Then, he answered, with a faint smile, we rise and kill the old ones as an example to the young ones, and to show them that we are the strongest. My poor wife was killed in that way three years ago. It was very sad, but to tell thee the truth, my son, life has been happier since, for my age protects me from the young ones. In short, I replied, quoting the saying of a great man whose wisdom has not yet enlightened the darkness of the Amahaga. Thou hast found thy position one of great freedom and less responsibility. This phrase puzzled him a little at first with its vagueness, though I think my translation hit off its sense very well. But at last he saw it and appreciated it. Yes, yes, my baboon, he said. I see it now. But all the responsibilities are killed. At least some of them are. And that is why there are so few old women about just now. Well, they brought it on themselves. As for this girl, he went on in a graver tone, I know not what to say. She is a brave girl, and she loves the lion, Leo. Thou sawest how she clung to him and saved his life. Also she is, according to our custom, wed to him, and has a right to go where he goes, unless, he added significantly, she would say her no, for her word overrides all rights. And if she bade him leave him, and the girl refused, what then? If, he said with a shrug, the hurricane bids the tree to bend, and it will not, what happens? And then, without waiting for an answer, he turned and walked to his litter, and in ten minutes from that time we were all well under way. It took us an hour and more to cross the cup of the volcanic plain, and another half hour or so to climb the edge on the farther side. 
Once there, however, the view was a very fine one. Before us was a long, steep slope of grassy plain, broken here and there by clumps of trees, mostly of the thorn tribe. At the bottom of the gentle slope, some nine or ten miles away, we could make out a dim sea of marsh, over which the foul vapours hung like smoke about a city. It was easy going for the bearers down the slope, and by midday we had reached the border of the dismal swamp. Here we halted to eat our midday meal, and then, following a winding and devious path, plunged into the morass. Presently the path, at any rate to our unaccustomed eyes, grew so faint as to be almost indistinguishable from those made by the aquatic beasts and birds, and it is to this day a mystery to me how our bearers found their way across the marshes. Ahead of the cavalcade marched two men with long poles, which they now and again plunged into the ground before them. The reason of this being that the nature of the soil frequently changed from causes with which I am not acquainted, so that the places which might be safe enough to cross one month would certainly swallow the wayfarer the next. Never did I see a more dreary and depressing scene, mile on miles of quagmire, varied only by bright green strips of comparatively solid ground, and by deep and sullen pools fringed with tall rushes, in which the bitterns boomed and the frogs croaked incessantly, miles on miles of it without a break, unless the fever fog can be called a break. The only life in this great morass was that of the aquatic birds, and the animals which fed on them, of both of which there were vast numbers. Geese, cranes, ducks, teal, coots, snipe and plover swarmed all around us. Many beings of varieties that were quite new to me, and so tame that one could almost have knocked them over with a stick. Among these birds I especially noticed a very beautiful variety of painted snipe, almost the size of a woodcock, and with a flight more resembling that bird's than an English snipe's. In the pools, too, was a species of small alligator or enormous iguana, I do not know which, which fed Bilali told me upon the waterfowl. Also large quantities of a hideous black water snake, of which the bite is very dangerous, though not, I gathered, so deadly as a cobra's or a puff-adder's. The bullfrogs were also very large and with voices proportionate to their size, and as for the mosquitoes, the musketeers, as Job called them, they were, if possible, even worse than they had been on the river, and tormented us greatly. Undoubtedly, however, the worst feature of the swamp was the awful smell of rotting vegetation that hung about it, which was at times positively overpowering, and the malarious exhalations that accompanied it which we were, of course, obliged to breathe. On we went through it all, till at last the sun sank in sullen splendour, just as we reached a spot of rising ground about two acres in extent. A little oasis of dry in the midst of the miry wilderness, where Bilali announced that we were to camp. 
the camping however turned out to be a very simple process and consisted in fact in sitting down on the ground round a scanty fire made of dry reeds and some wood that had been brought with us however we made the best we could of it and smoked and ate with such appetite as the smell of damp stifling heat would allow for it was very hot on the slow land and yet oddly enough chilly at times but however hot it was we were glad enough to keep near the fire because we found that the mosquitoes do not like the smoke presently we rolled ourselves up in our blankets and tried to go to sleep but so far as i was concerned the bullfrogs and the extraordinary roaring and alarming sounds produced by the hundreds of snipe hovering high in the air made sleep an impossibility to say nothing of our other discomforts i turned and looked at leo who was next to me he was dozing but his face had a flushed appearance that i did not like and by the flickering firelight i saw his stain who was lying on the other side of him raise herself from time to time upon her elbow and look at him anxiously enough however i could do nothing for him for we had all already taken a good dose of quinine which was the only preventative we had so i lay and watched the stars come out by thousands till all the immense arch of heaven was strewn with glittering points and every point a world here was a glorious sight by which man might well measure his own insignificance soon i gave up thinking about it for the mind wearies easily when it strives to grapple with the infinite and to trace the footsteps of the almighty as he strides from sphere to sphere or deduce his purpose from his works such things are not for us to know knowledge is to the strong and we are weak too much wisdom would perchance blind our imperfect sight and too much strength would make us drunk and overweigh our feeble reason till it fell and we were drowned in the depths of our own vanity for what is the first result of man's increased knowledge interpreted from nature's book by the persistent efforts of his purblind observation it is not but too often to make him question the existence of his maker or indeed of any intelligent purpose beyond his own the truth is veiled because we could no more look upon her glory than we can upon the sun it would destroy us full knowledge is not for man as man is here for his capacities which he is apt to think so great are indeed but small the vessel is soon filled and were one thousandth part of the unutterable and silent wisdom that directs the rolling of these shining spheres and the force which makes them roll pressed into it it would be shattered into fragments perhaps in some other place and time it may be otherwise who can tell here the lot of man born of the flesh is but to endure midst toil and tribulation to catch at the bubbles blown by fate which he calls pleasure thankful if before they burst they rest a moment in his hand and when the tragedy is played out and his hour comes to perish to pass humbly whither he knows not 
above me as i lay shone the eternal stars and there at my feet the impish marsh-born balls of fire rolled this way and that vapour tossed and earth desiring and methought that in the two i saw a type and image of what man is and what perchance man may one day be if the living force who ordained him and them should so ordain this also oh that it might be ours to rest year by year upon the high level of the heart to which at times we momentarily attain oh that we could shake loose the prisoned pinions of the soul and soar to that superior point whence like to some traveller looking out through space from darien's giddiest peak we might gaze with spiritual eyes deep into infinity what would it be to cast off this earthly robe to have done forever with these earthly thoughts and miserable desires no longer like those corpse candles to be tossed this way and that by forces beyond our control or which if we can theoretically control them we are at times driven by the exigencies of our nature to obey yes to cast them off to have done with the foul and thorny places of the world and like to those glittering points above me to rest on high wrapped forever in the brightness of our better selves that even now shines in us as fire faintly shines within those lurid balls and lay down our littleness in that wide glory of our dreams that invisible but surrounding good from which all truth and beauty comes these and many such thoughts pass through my mind that night they come to torment us all at times i say to torment for alas thinking can only serve to measure out the helplessness of thought what is the purpose of our feeble crying in this awful silence of space can our dim intelligence read the secrets of the star-strewn sky does any answer come out of it never any at all nothing but echoes and fantastic visions and yet we believe that there is an answer and that upon a time a new dawn will come blushing down the ways of our enduring night we believe it for its reflected beauty even now shines up continually in our hearts from beneath the horizon of the grave and we call it hope without hope we should suffer moral death and by the help of hope we may yet climb to heaven or at worst if she also prove but a kindly mockery given to hold us from despair be gently lowered into the abysses of eternal sleep then i fell to reflecting upon the undertaking on which we were bent and what a wild one it was and yet how strangely the story seemed to fit in with what had been written centuries ago upon the shard who was this extraordinary woman queen over a people apparently as extraordinary as herself and reigning amidst the vestiges of a lost civilization and what was the meaning of the story of the fire that gave unending life 
could it be possible that any fluid or essence should exist that might so fortify these fleshy walls that they should from age to age resist the mines and batterings of decay it was possible though not probable the infinite continuation of life would not as poor vinci said be so marvellous a thing as the production of life and its temporary endurance and if it were true what then the person who found it could no doubt rule the world he could accumulate all the wealth in the world and all the power and all the wisdom that is power he might give a lifetime to the study of each art or science well if that were so and this she were practically immortal which i did not for one moment believe how was it that with all these things at her feet she preferred to remain in a cave amongst a society of cannibals this surely settled the question the whole story was monstrous and only worthy of the superstitious days in which it was written at any rate i was very sure that i would not attempt to attain unending life i had had far too many worries and disappointments and secret bitternesses during my forty-odd years of existence to wish that this state of affairs should be continued indefinitely and yet i suppose that my life had been comparatively speaking a happy one and then reflecting that at the present moment there was far more likelihood of our earthly careers being cut exceedingly short than of their being unduly prolonged i at last managed to go to sleep a fact for which anybody who reads this narrative if anybody ever does may very probably be thankful when i woke again it was just dawning and the guards and bearers were moving about like ghosts through the dense morning mists getting ready for our start the fire had died quite down and i rose and stretched myself shivering in every limb from the damp cold of the dawn then i looked at leo he was sitting up holding his hands to his head and i saw that his face was flushed and his eye bright and yet yellow round the pupil well leo i said how do you feel i feel as though i were going to die he answered hoarsely my head is splitting my body is trembling and i am sick as a cat i whistled or if i did not whistle i felt inclined to leo got a sharp attack of fever i went to job and asked him for the quinine of which fortunately we had still a good supply only to find that job himself was not much better he complained of pains across his back and dizziness and was almost incapable of helping himself then i did the only thing it was possible to do under the circumstances gave them both about ten grains of quinine and took a slightly smaller dose for myself as a matter of precaution after that i found Bilali and explained to him how matters stood asking at the same time what he thought had best be done he came with me and looked at leo and job whom by the way he had named the pig on account of his fatness round face and small eyes ah he said when we were out of earshot the fever 
I thought so. The lion has it badly, but he is young, and he may live. As for the pig, his attack is not so bad. It is the little fever, which he has, that always begins with pains across the back. It will spend itself upon his fat. Can they go on, my father, I asked? Nay, my son, they must go on. If they stop here, they will certainly die. Also, they will be better in the litters than on the ground. By tonight, if all goes well, we shall be across the marsh and in good air. Come, let us lift them into the litters and start, for it is very bad to stand still in this morning fog. We can eat our meal as we go. This we accordingly did, and with a heavy heart I once more set out upon our strange journey. For the first three hours all went as well as could be expected, and then an accident happened that nearly lost us the pleasure of the company of our venerable friend Balali, whose litter was leading the cavalcade. We were going through a particularly dangerous stretch of quagmire, in which the bearers sometimes sank up to their knees. Indeed, it was a mystery to me how they contrived to carry the heavy litters at all over such ground as that which we were traversing, though the two spear hands, as well as the four regular ones, had of course to put their shoulders to the pole. Presently, as we blundered and floundered along, there was a sharp cry, then a storm of exclamations, and last of all a most tremendous splash, and the whole caravan halted. I jumped out of my litter and ran forward. About twenty yards ahead was the edge of one of those sullen peaty pools of which I have spoken. The path we were following running along the top of the bank, that as it happened was a steep one, Looking towards the pool, to my horror I saw that Bilali's litter was floating on it, and as for Bilali himself, he was nowhere to be seen. To make matters clear, I may as well explain at once what had happened. One of Bilali's bearers had unfortunately trodden on a basking snake, which had bitten him in the leg, whereon he had, not unnaturally, let go of the pole, and then, finding that he was tumbling down the bank, grabbed at the litter to save himself. The result of this was what might have been expected. The litter was pulled over the edge of the bank, the bearers let go, and the whole thing, including Bilali and the man who had been bitten, rolled into the slimy pool. When I got to the edge of the water, neither of them were to be seen. Indeed, the unfortunate bearer never was seen again. Either he struck his head against something, or got wedged in the mud, or possibly the snake bite paralyzed him. At any rate, he vanished. But though Bilali was not to be seen, his whereabouts was clear enough from the agitation of the floating litter, and the bearing cloth and curtains of which he was entangled. He is there, our father is there, said one of the men, but he did not stir a finger to help him, nor did any of the others. They simply stood and stared at the water. Out of the way, you brutes, I shouted in English, and throwing off my hat, I took a run and spring well out into the horrid, slimy-looking pool. A couple of strokes took me to where Bilali was struggling beneath the cloth. Somehow, I do not quite know how, I managed to push it free of him, and his venerable head all covered with green slime. 
like that of a yellowish bacchus with ivy leaves emerged from the surface of the water the rest was easy for Bilali was an eminently practical individual and had the common sense not to grasp hold of me as drowning people often do so i got him by the arm and towed him to the bank through the mud of which we were with difficulty dragged such a filthy spectacle as we presented i have never seen before or since and it will perhaps give some idea of the almost superhuman dignity of Bilali's appearance when i say that coughing half drowned and covered with mud and green slime as he was with his beautiful beard coming to a dripping point like a chinaman's freshly oiled pigtail he looked venerable and imposing ye dogs he said addressing the bearers as soon as he had sufficiently recovered to speak ye left me your father to drown had it not been for this stranger my son the baboon assuredly i should have drowned well i will remember it and he fixed them with his gleaming though slightly watery eye in a way which i saw that they did not like though they tried to appear sulkily indifferent as for thee my son the old man went on turning towards me and grasping my hand rest assured that i am thy friend through good and evil thou hast saved my life perchance a day may come when i shall save thine after that we cleaned ourselves as best as we could fished out the litter and went on minus the man who had been drowned i do not know if it was owing to his being an unpopular character or from native indifference and selfishness of temperament but i am bound to say that nobody seemed to grieve much over his sudden and final disappearance unless perhaps was the men who had to do his share of the work end of chapter 10 recording by kerry ford